0: This episode is sponsored by ByHeart. ByHeart is an infant nutrition company whose mission is simple: make the best formula in the world using the latest in breast milk science. ByHeart created a clinically proven, easy-to-digest infant formula that's made with organic, grass-fed whole milk, certified clean ingredients, and features a patented protein blend that gets closest to breast milk. Our blend includes the most abundant protein found in breast milk, Curious about By Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with the code parenting for a limited time.
1: Additional terms and conditions apply. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty-nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Your Village podcast, Parenting Beyond Discipline, the place to learn about all things parenting and get your questions answered. I'm your host, Erin Royer. This week's questions are about a chronic early riser and handling a power struggle with a toddler. And in this case, it's a refusal to wear a jacket when it's really cold out. So I'll get to dealing with early risers and with the power struggles with toddlers in a moment, but I've been getting some inquiries about my training and racing goals and how and what I'm doing. So I'll save that for the end for those who are curious and for those who aren't. You can get all the parenting information up front and then you can just turn me off. So a little bit of background though, and there is some parenting wisdom in here, so that's why I wanna go into this just a little bit, so bear with me. Now, I'm not sure how much of this I've shared about in my other podcasts, I don't think very much, but probably a little. I was diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis at the age of nine, but I probably had it most of my life before that. It just took them that long for me to complain enough and to get a diagnosis. Now, I've had four joint replacements, both jaw joints in 2003, and then both hips were done two years ago in 2017. I'd been having a lot of difficulties with my knees over the past several years also, and then I just put up with it. Between the hips and the knees, it's just life with arthritis but I'd finally had enough last fall when I went in to see an orthopedist. Because after my hip surgery, the left knee actually stopped swelling altogether, but the right one kept swelling every two weeks without fail. I actually posted a picture of this on my Instagram account at ironmom2020 a few months ago. Now this was no small swelling. It was huge and very, very uncomfortable. It really got in the way of, well, my training obviously, but even just walking was in life in general so uncomfortable just to walk around just to walk through life so i finally went to see the doctor like i said and i was fully expecting to hear that i needed a joint replace there too that's the news i've always gotten every time i go in to complain about something is i need a joint replace so i was expecting that To make a long story a little shorter, the test revealed that the structure looked really good. He thought it might be some arthritic flare that's just been ongoing, and he offered to scrape out the joint saying it wasn't super effective. It didn't usually last very long and would leave me swollen for six weeks. So that didn't sound like a great option. So I said, let's try some physical therapy first, which was another option he offered to see if that would help. Sure enough. After a few months, my swelling got less and less, and after three months, it stopped altogether. I haven't had any swelling in almost six months, and I am so grateful. It just turned out to be what's called patellar femoral syndrome, and the physical therapy fixed it. Now I do my exercises in the gym for my knee that have been given to me by the physical therapist religiously. So from my parenting wisdom, as it relates to my growing up with arthritis and things I've observed in parents of kids with health and other issues, is that I want parents to really take heart that our kids' diagnoses don't have to define them. I know I talk about my upbringing and the things my parents struggled with, but they also did some things very well, and this is one of them. They did not baby me after my diagnosis. They went about life as usual. They supported my medical care, but they didn't let me off the hook or treat me like a victim or let anyone else treat me that way. My dad always had a big can-do attitude and he didn't like excuses. You weren't allowed to say can't in front of my dad. And I love this message for everyone and something to strive and pass on to my kids. I think it's important to do everything we can to explain that any struggle they happen to have And I know some struggles are bigger than others, but whether they're a physical imperfection or a mental behavioral issue, that it's best to take a solution focused approach, especially when we're working with our kids. Do the research, do everything you can to find out about the diagnosis, what others have done and tried and support them in finding the best answer available for their body, mind and spirit that will work for them. There's no one size fits all, of course. But you may find the first, second, or even third thing you try doesn't work, but keep seeing what other options are out there. You never know what might work. I won't share all the crazy stuff people gave me growing up to try that they swear worked for their great aunt Sally, but you never know. Now, in addition, for us parents with our own afflictions and struggles, I think it's equally important to show our kids how to be solution focused when it comes to our own issues and struggles, whether it's health related or anything else. Finding a job, you name it, showing them how to be predominantly proactive versus feeling like a victim is a huge gift for them. Sometimes we do need to fall apart and that's okay too, but it's best to do it with a supportive adult, especially when kids are young. I won't say that I haven't had times in my life where I've had to fall apart. When I got the news that I needed jaw surgery actually for the second time because I had surgery as a 14-year-old on my jaw joints already, Then as an adult, they told me I needed to have them done again, and I fell apart when I got that news, and I felt a little sorry for myself, and I was like, why me? Why do I have to go through this again? Why does this have to happen to me? And then I didn't have kids at that point, actually. Um, I was like, you know, Erin, you can go through this with strength and just accept that this is your reality, and this is what your life is, and you have to do this right now, or you can go through it and feel sorry for yourself. It's your choice. Obviously, I chose to be strong and just accept that this is my reality. And every time I've gotten this type of news from then on, I've just accepted it and taken it all in stride. Okay, so after that tangent, hopefully has some pearls of wisdom for most of you parents out there somewhere in what I just shared. So I'm going to get on to the questions. So our early riser question from Emily wrote, hi, Aaron, thanks for the great information. I'm desperate for some help. I have a 15 month old who sleep trained since she was six months with the fading extinction method. We have no problems except early wakings from when we sleep trained her, so nine months now, which varies from 4.30 to 5.30 a.m. every day. Our sleep trainer had us do check-ins after 4am waking and she said the issue would solve, but we did that until 10 months and it didn't work. And her screams were getting louder and we were just getting so heartbroken. We did the check-ins, nothing worked. We did the shuffle method to arouse her an hour before she wakes, so at 3.30, that did not work. Her room is pitch dark like a cave, white noise on, tried everything. Now she's 15 months and we have the same issues. We tried putting her to bed later, earlier. That didn't work either. We spent more money on other sleep trainers, you name it. I wanted to see if anything is missing. We have not tried that you know of. She's 15 months old now and used to take a nap for two to two and a half hours, but now it's an hour and a half and it got shorter due to overtiredness. Her bedtime is seven at the latest, but recently we've been putting her down at 630. And by the time she falls asleep, it's usually seven. Please shed some light. Thank you. Emily. So first, I reached out to Emily asking for some more details about her daughter's full sleep schedule so I can get a full idea of just how much sleep she's getting in 24 hours and when. So Emily responded that she currently wakes anywhere from 4 to 5.30 a.m. They let her stay in her crib until 6, so she learns that her wake-up time. If she wakes at 4, she'll give her a sippy cup. If it's 5.30, she lets her stay in her bed until 6. Giving the sippy cup started a month ago. Before that, she would cry it out with no check-ins. Then breakfast is at 8. If she wakes at 4 and I have to go somewhere, she takes a 15 to 20 minute nap in the car around 9. If she wakes at 5.30, she usually resists it. Lunch is at 11.30 and she goes down for a nap between 12 and 12.30. Usually takes her 20 to 30 minutes to fall asleep with some fussing, some playing. Her noon naps used to be 2 to 2.5 hours, like she shared, but they recently dropped down to an hour and a half. She's thinking due to overtiredness. She used to take two naps until 14 months, one at 9 a.m. and the other at 1.30, p.m. Each of them an hour and a half, but she would still wake at 5.30 a.m. Her bedtime has been 7 p.m. lately, but we put her down at 6.30 because she's so tired. By the time she falls asleep, it's 7. We do her bedtime routine. She goes to bed fully awake, puts herself to sleep, and usually plays some, might fuss a minute, but mostly plays with herself and then falls asleep. She sleeps through until 4 to 5.30. Okay, so it's a lot of Detailed information. Some of those details may have gotten lost, but what I was really looking for was the total amount of time that she's sleeping, and then kind of the times of day, so we could see um, what some what the patterns are and if they need to shift around. So, here's what I'm seeing: 15 months old. So at 12 months, the sleep averages between 12 and a half to 14 hours. At 18 months, it's 12 and a half to 13 hours. So it doesn't change too much. It just drops down an hour on the upper end. Um, So it sounds like generally she's getting enough sleep. She may be a little on the low end some days and hence that cat nap in the car. It also seems like she's on the lower end just in general. So 12 and a half hours a day and that's still okay. She may extend it some after you implement these suggestions, but if not, she may just be someone who needs less sleep overall. So here's a couple things I see happening. First, because she's falling asleep on her own at bedtime and naptime, even though it takes a little bit of time. And that's normal because the sleep pressure is lower at nap time than at bedtime. When she's waking up early, it tells me she's done sleeping for the night. She's awake. She's ready to get up. Secondly, when she wakes up early at four, she gets a sippy. But if she sleeps until 5.30, she has to stay and cry. So she's getting rewarded for waking up really early. But a negative association if she sleeps until 5.30. So I'm thinking her body is going to wake her up at 4 over the 5.30, even if she's tired, just because of the association or reward difference between the two wake-up times, if that makes sense. So here's what I suggest. The first is either give a sippy cup at the morning wake-up regardless, But don't change it based on the time. Just make it part of the morning routine when she wakes up, regardless of what time it is. Or don't give it at all. Either way is fine. You just want to be consistent. I also think given that she hasn't had anything in her tummy since dinner, she's waking up hungry. And so a sippy at wake up is not a bad idea. Secondly, I would like to see her sleep schedule shifted, but not necessarily any more hours. I think she's fine with the amount of hours once you get it shifted to a schedule that works better for you. You may see her stretch out the nighttime or nap time just a little bit since there will be consistency with the sippy cup and or having to wait or not having to wait in the morning. It'll just be consistent. Ultimately, obviously the time schedule is not working. So I'm thinking 7.30 bedtime will push to a 6 to 6.30 wake up and a one and a half to two hour nap at one to 1.30. So getting everything shifted. If she does have a long nap day, don't let her sleep past 4 p.m. So the first few days will be a bit of a transition as she adjusts and keep in mind, the morning may not shift for the first day or two or even three. So be ready for the early mornings for a few days, even with a later bedtime. So push the bedtime and nap time later by 15 minutes. So tonight at bedtime, It's 6.45, unless you want to go right back to 7, and that's fine, too. She'll be cranky. It's not fun in the evenings, but it will make the mornings better in a few days. The same thing with the nap tomorrow. Push it 15 minutes, so 12.15 to 12.45. She goes down for her nap. Do this for three days. So she will probably wake up just as early tomorrow, but if you're lucky, she may catch on right away and push 15 minutes in the morning when she's awake, get her and do what you would do as if she had slept to a more reasonable time, 6 a.m. Get up with her, get her a sippy, let her play, whatever. On the fourth day, push it another 15 minutes. So now you're at 7 p.m or 7:15 bedtime and at 12:30 to 1 p.m nap time. Do this for three days. all the same as before with getting up, blah, blah blah. You want to keep pushing it until you get to a 7:30 bedtime and a 1 to 130 nap time. So overall, You should be on that schedule in about a week and a half to two weeks, and she should be sleeping later in the mornings to a more reasonable time. Now let me know if you have further questions, need some clarification, and also just how it goes in general. As an adult and a mom of a son, both with ADHD, I know navigating the expectations of life with ADHD can be a challenge, but finding the right care and proper tools needed to succeed can be life-changing. With the right resources, you can turn your ADHD into your superpower. Done is an online ADHD care platform that can get you all the resources you need to help manage your ADHD. Online visits, refills, and a 24-7 care team made for you. Starting to take care of your ADHD is as easy as one, taking a one-minute free assessment to see if Done can help. Two, booking an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as today or tomorrow. Three, start receiving ongoing care, enjoy online visits, personalized treatment plan, worry-free refills, and 24-7 care. Take a free one-minute assessment and book an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as the next day. Get continuous care, insurance coverage and 24/ 7 care team support with done for just $79 a month and pharmacy co-pays as low as zero dollars. Unlock your path to better focus now at get.donefirst.com/podcast. Done Turn your ADHD into your strength. help with sleep and stress as a bonus. Head to myeq.com and use code parenting for 15% off Equilibria's microbiome defense and much more. That's myeq.com and use code parenting at checkout for 15% off site-wide today. Okay, the next question is from Rachel who wrote my husband and I are longtime podcast listeners and have done some of your courses over the years that have been super helpful. However, I wanted to ask about a topic I don't think you have covered. How to manage preschoolers with intense clothing preferences. Our oldest son is nearly four and is extremely fussy with clothing. For example, he'll only wear sandals or gum boots. They might be called Wellington boots in America, one specific style of black track pants in winter or PAW Patrol shorts like pajama shorts in summer. He's been like this for years now and we have gently made some improvements in flexibility, like he would only wear pajamas and no sweaters or jumpers as a toddler, but now he wears track pants and tight-fitting merino jumpers on cold days. However, we can't get him to wear a jacket when it's raining. We've tried many styles and taken him to the shop for him to choose. He gets lots of choices and I work hard on descriptive praise, but this is still an issue. Last winter, I ended up getting so frustrated. I said if he didn't put on a jacket, he couldn't go outside to play. He's very active and literally spends all day running, biking, digging, and playing outside. For over three weeks, we couldn't leave the house to play because he refused to wear a coat, and I had said we would only play outside if he wore a coat. This obviously is also a big issue for us as a family, as it means I can't walk the dogs or take his siblings out to play. In the end, I resorted to locking him safely inside and taking a 10-minute walk with everyone else, which improves our mental well-being, but he becomes hard to manage as he really needs to go outside to burn some decent energy running around. How do I get him to cooperate and just wear certain items when the weather dictates it? Last time it randomly snowed, we ended up having to put a jacket on him and he sobbed and then became unable to move so we ended up carrying him until we got back to the house and he could remove the coat. He's a very capable child, good communication skills, extremely good biker and swimmer, great at problem solving to fix toys, sensitive and independent. But he is so very stubborn and inflexible when it comes to clothing. I just want him to wear sensible clothing when needed. Any advice is appreciated. Thank you, Rachel. So, Rachel, this is interesting. This is something I haven't covered before. But some kids are really sensitive to textures on their skin. Now, it sounds like your son falls in this category. You're going to be like, no, of course he does. My oldest actually has this issue as well. He only likes to wear athletic shorts or athletic pants, sweatpants, and also he won't wear underwear. Yet the kid will wear his tight swim jammers. I don't know. It is possible your son has a sensory processing issue. I think mine may as well, but I'm not getting him tested or I'm really worried about it but it does run on my husband's side of the family also, so I wouldn't be surprised, but we've just worked around it. So for example, of how we've worked through this, I do set the guidelines and boundaries when it comes to dressy events, like big holidays at Temple or Cub Scout promotions, that kind of thing, that he must wear nice pants. So we figured out the softest, coziest, dressy pants we could find, and then allow him to wear some type of soft but thin sweatshorts underneath. And this is fine. Now, I don't love that he wears sweatshorts or pants to school, but he does play handball every day at recess. And I do understand the desire to be comfortable for that. And also, it doesn't affect his learning, and that's what's really important. So I let that go. But when he needs to be more presentable, we have worked out a solution that works for everyone. So I would work on finding a solution that works for both him and for you as parents. Is there a soft sweatshirt he could wear? Whether it's a pullover or a zipper front or a button front. I don't know if the zipper will bother him. If he's got something underneath it, hopefully it wouldn't bother. It shouldn't bother him, but you never know. Um, so can he wear a couple of those? Can he layer somehow a long-sleeved shirt under a sweatshirt? A long john, a type of long johns, like a, a cozy pajama-type shirt under a long-sleeved shirt and then under a sweatshirt or just under a sweatshirt, something. And then if it's rainy, carry an umbrella. I know it's frustrating when you just want them to put on a jacket and get out the door, but in this case, I feel like it may be helpful to all of you to keep working on it until you find a solution that works so that he can go out with you and you aren't worried about him getting too cold or wet or exposed to the weather in heat or cold, whatever that may be. And he gets the comfort he seeks and it removes the power struggle of having to wear particular clothes. And if you just find that he just can't find anything, you may want to talk to your pediatrician about getting an assessment for a sensory processing disorder that you can find an occupational therapist to help you work through and can help him become less sensitive to the, to the touch of certain clothing. If you have further questions around this or some details you'd like to share as you work through it, Rachel, feel free to reach out to me again. Before I share about my training and racing details, I want to talk about my why, why I do this. One of the biggest reasons is that my racing and training is my sanity. There are so little areas in life where we have control. We don't have control over the weather, how other people behave, how long the line is at the grocery store, accidents, many health problems, the aging process... Parenting alone is full of these. When our kids start walking or talking or they're truly ready to potty train, we don't really have control over that stuff and so many other things. The list goes on and on. What I've learned, and I'm still learning, is to take control of those things that are within my power and accept those that are not. My training is one area where I have a lot of control. I get to decide if I'm going to follow my training plan that day, and if so, how hard I'm going to work when I get there it's all up to me. If I get to a race day and I don't perform, it's no one else's fault but mine. If I get there and I do really well, I can take full credit for the work and preparation I put in. And this helps me do better in areas where I don't always have as much control as I'd like. It is my sanity. Okay, so for those curious about my training and racing regimen, I'm gonna share a little bit about that now. And just kind of an overall how it works throughout the year and the races that I like to do. Now, I'm more of a distance person, so the half Ironman is actually my favorite distance. That's a 1.2 mile swim, 56 mile bike, and a 13.1 mile run. For those in countries with the metric system, that's a 1.9k swim, a 90k ride, and a 21.1k run. But I also made a goal for myself of doing a full Ironman next year in 2020, which is the year I will turn... 50, which is actually why my Instagram handle is ironmom2020, because my goal was to do another Ironman in the year 2020. Now, the last and only time I did a full Ironman was back in 2001 when I was still 30. My goal is to not only finish, but to beat that time I got when I was 30, which was 15 hours and 46 minutes and one second. So it's actually not that high of a bar to beat, I don't think. So this year, I have one half Ironman on my schedule. That's August 3rd in Boulder, Colorado. Next year, I'll do one half and then a full. I haven't chosen either of those races. And training is an art and a science. And while there are some basic guidelines to follow, it's also important to know your own body. So a lot of this is about knowing my own body and what it can take, how much it can take, how it responds to different training, etc. cetera. Now last year, I raced one very early race in early May, and then I raced again in mid-December. So that was a really spread out long season, and I got pretty tired by the end. In winter, most of us tend to do base training, which is about building endurance and also getting more recovery to allow our bodies to heal and rejuvenate for that push that's gonna come in the spring and summer months. Now this winter, I tried to work on my running more to get that back up to where it was before my double hip surgery in 2017. Then I just recently, last a couple weeks ago, finished up a six week base training. And then this week I started my 12 week intense training leading up to the race. So at this point I do each sport two days a week with a one day break. Right now my sessions are an hour to an hour and a half each but they'll get longer as the weeks progress with three weeks of increasing length and intensity. And then every fourth week is an easier recovery week. And I haven't really set a time goal for this race at this point. I'm really just going to give my training 100%, drop another eight pounds so I can be lean and as fast as possible, especially because it's at altitude, and then just go and enjoy the race regardless of how fast I can do it. It's at altitude, so I have no idea how that's going to affect me. So rather than set some time goals, I'd rather just enjoy the day. And if I smoke it, then I can be pleasantly surprised and By smoke it, for me, I mean anything under six hours and 15 minutes. If you have a parenting question you'd like answered, send an email to podcast at yourvillageonline.com. Thanks for listening and see you next week.
1: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.